regardless of the outcome, whether you won the game 100 to nothing or lost zero to 100, it is really interrogating and assessing the performance that you had in that interval and applying the learnings and getting right back in the saddle the next morning and doing it again. Hi, I'm Jubin, business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-to-Market Grit, a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. And now, on to this episode. Ross, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jubin. How are you? I am good, man. So we get these things started with me reading my guests' backgrounds to them. So I'm going to go ahead and read your background to you and let me know what I miss. Okay. Let's do it. You got a BA in political science from UC Berkeley. Then you got your master's in management from Oxford, the business school there. Then you went into iBanking. You were an analyst at Harris Williams and Co. for a year. You then went on to Adobe for three years, starting as the manager of business strategy and corp dev, M&A. Then moving on to what seemingly looks like your first sales role as a senior AE on Adobe Marketing Cloud which looked like kind of some of your enterprise sales experience. And then you went on to be the director of sales at Crowdflower for a year, which was acquired eventually six years after you leaving by Appen. Then you went on to actually be the co-founder and board member at Stealth for five years, which I think got acquired ultimately. It did by Amazon in I think 2014. Got it. And then you went on to be the VP of sales for America's and APAC at Lithium Technologies. You spent four and a half years doing that. Ultimately, that was acquired by Vista Equity Partners. You probably spent a bit of time at Vista. Then you went on to be the CRO executive in residence at Bessemer Venture Partners for about a year. And currently, you are the CRO of Service Titan. As of August 2019, you were promoted from VP of Worldwide Sales. Congratulations, Ross. What did I miss? I think that uh, directionally, it all sounds right. And it was like, you know, reading, I haven't looked in a resume in a long time or the LinkedIn profile, but it was good to remind me of all of those great experiences. Thanks for recapping it. Yeah, guests sometimes hate me because they feel like I'm dating them, but I think most of my guests are very modest. And so it's important for me to read it back to them. All right. I think a couple of questions that I have before we dive into any of the service Titan stuff. The first is the uh, executive in residence at Bessemer. I think it's a really cool role. Maybe I'm biased because I work for a venture fund, but tell me about that. So yeah, in terms of order of operations, I was actually already at Service Titan and had been transitioned from our VP of sales to our chief revenue officer. And Bessemer had reached out to me being the first venture investor in Service Titan. And actually my second tour at working at a Bessemer company, Crowdflower was as well. And what they really were trying to build for the first time in their business was a change to the AIR program. And my understanding looking at some of the other investors in the Valley is that the AIR program is something that isn't typically managed by full-time operators at companies. And I really respect and appreciated the, the vision that Byron Dieter and David Wares and Chris Parker had over at Bessemer, which said that we kind of want to turn this on its head a little bit and bring in almost a shared services model with operators that are actually still working in full-time capacities at the respective Bessemer portfolio companies to bring that breadth of knowledge and areas of functional expertise to other members of the portfolio team. So I was super excited about it obviously had to make sure that it wasn't going to adversely compromise my time nor commitment to the full-time operating role at Service Titan. 
but I've learned a ton from it. I've gotten to know the other EIRs and their areas of expertise, whether it be in marketing, engineering, support, customer success. And we get together on a regular basis. And then it's a pretty unique model to where I work with the platform advisors based on feedback that they or the board members at Bessemer at the respective portfolio companies are looking for specific areas of help, whether it be how do you start your first outbound sales motion? How do you think about account-based marketing? How do you think about territory playing and compensation? And so it's really given me the exposure to companies of a variety of different flavors and been able to not only share some of the things that I've learned in my career, but also I see it as a learning experience to see what are some of the nuggets of gold that these guys are doing that I can take back to Service Titan and then potentially to help others. Yep. Makes total sense. When I was doing some research on your background, a couple things came up that I thought were interesting that I was hoping we could dive into to kind of contextualize what you do and why you do it. So initially what struck me was that you went to Oxford and then you went to iBanking. And then, you know, at some point it felt like maybe you were going to go down that path and then you veered towards sales. And as I started to dig into this more and I looked up your last name on LinkedIn, it looks like your dad was actually the VP of sales at Netscape. For the audience listening, Netscape was really the precursor to the internet or the internet explorer. And they're credited with JavaScript. Like that was a badass early tech company. And your dad was kind of the, the revenue guy there. So anyway, it seems like you have a little bit of this in your DNA. Maybe if you could just tell the story of how'd you get into it? Why'd you get into it? Were you trying to do something different and then realized that's ah, actually pretty cool? Yeah, so I actually went uh, into investment banking out of undergrad in 2007. I joined Harris Williams, a middle market M&A advisor. And I didn't really know that that was the path that I wanted to go down. But I had seen some movies like Wall Street and this movie with Nicolas Cage called The Family Man. <laughs> and I said, wow, that seems like a really interesting job and hardcore. And it kind of reminded me of being on a sports team, very competitive. And so I went into that without a lot of exposure and experience. And you know, I very quickly realized being an analyst that the work was very difficult, very challenging, but it wasn't going to be my cup of tea long term. And I ultimately wanted to gravitate to where my skill set I thought was better. And my favorite part about being an analyst was when I actually got to go and perform the pitch in front of these prospective clients that were looking to potentially sell. And that's where I really had the opportunity to, to shine and feel super comfortable in my skin. And so I decided that you know after my analyst tour of duty, so to speak, that I was going to apply to business school and then went on to Oxford to do that with the intention of getting back into software, being you know, from the San Francisco Bay Area. And you're right, on my background, I've really had the, the privilege and pleasure of getting to see it in real action, which not a lot of people have been able to see with a family member and my dad, larger than life sales leader. And what was nice is that he would often invite me to some of the things that he did at work, whether it was the President's Club event where he's hosting all the top performers in Hawaii for a job well done and the recognition that associated with that and all the positive energy and charisma that comes out of those great meetings or to sales kickoff and one of the stories that I've mentioned to several people before that was probably like the inspiration in the back of my mind is in the mid 90s when Netscape was really booming. I got invited to sales kickoff at Netscape where my dad was hosting a thousand people and 
Mark Andreessen and Jim Barksdale got up on stage and said some really amazing things that just really burned in the back of my mind around, you know, not anything's ever going to happen at this company until somebody goes out and sells something to somebody. So really recognizing the importance of revenue generation on the front lines, but doing so in a way that was respectful and kind of exemplified gratitude for all the other functions in the business that make the salesperson's job possible. That's a great story. And then at Berkeley and at Oxford, were you playing pretty competitive rugby? Yeah, so I ended up going to Berkeley, uh, obviously to first and foremost pursue my higher education, but uh, I was fortunate enough to also be recruited as a student athlete playing for the Cal Varsity Rugby program, which is storied with incredible history, not only on the field in national championships for the last 30 to 40 years, but also with really great human beings that uh, were under the tutelage and mentorship of the still full-time coach since the early 1980s, Jack Clark. And so I pursued my athletic career as an intercollegiate athlete at Berkeley. And one of the nice things about going to Oxford is they actually don't distinguish like the US does in terms of the NCAA. So you could be a graduate student or an undergrad and play on the rugby team there. So the reason I ask, when you went to Oxford, you wrote a thesis on high-performance people, right? I looked it up for a while. I couldn't find it. I assume they just don't publish students' theses or whatever. But anyway, hearing you talk about it in other places, I think it's ironic foreshadowing early, early days for you, what you'd be doing now. It's running high-performance teams. And I absolutely want to get into Service Titan in the story. Before I do, one thing you talk about is nine levers of high-performance people. And you say that there's intrinsic and extrinsic motivations to help teams rally around one goal. Can you share more about that? Yeah, so it was something that you know struck me as not only satisfying my desire to understand how corporate environments can become high-performance teams, but also what I had personally witnessed being part of high-performing sports programs like Cal Varsity Rugby, for example, which is still, I would attest, uh, one of the most high-performance environments in the world and certainly the, the most that I've ever had the opportunity to be a part of and to learn from. And so the research, I partnered not only with Oxford University, but also with a consulting organization called Elkium. And interestingly, it's funny how these things all come full circle, but when I was in San Francisco, I was playing rugby kind of nights and weekends for the Olympic club. And one of the coaches was this Australian guy who was also an incredible software sales leader named Paul Limbery. And he was at SAP at the time. And he's now been at Google for probably five or six years doing incredibly well. And he essentially started this company along with his co-founder, Andrew Meikle, a professional athlete in Australia in the sport of surf lifesaving. And this guy was all about understanding both physiologically as well as from a psychological perspective, what is the most conducive way to achieve high performance in any field. And he obviously started out in sport, but wanted to see the translations to corporate environments. So I'm probably becoming a little bit long-winded here, but that's the prelude. So one of the things that I got to participate in as part of the research, and it originally started out with let's study high-performing individuals, whether they're Nobel laureates, scientists, professional athletes, military leaders, and let's try to understand from the inside out what is the makeup of these people 
that makes them perform at such an elite level. But we actually had the opportunity to participate in part of the research with a member of the faculty at Oxford, Richard Dawkins. And he actually told the consulting organization, you're looking at this the wrong way. And it's not really what happens on the inside out that makes individuals perform, but what is it as it relates to the environment that they're in that actually produces the change in high performance. So the thesis was essentially, if you believe that people change when their environmental circumstances change, then there must be a set of circumstances that produce the change called high performance. So the conceptual framework, which was called the high performance environmental structure, essentially identified specific levers that can create both intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. And how can you get those things to exist in an organizational environment to lift the performance metric of all of those that are involved? So it was really impressive you know, research that I got to be a part of, but getting exposure to different elite organizations like the US military, to NASA, to the Royal Ballet, these were all parts of the research that said, you've got a population of already very talented people, then you apply a specific set of standards and this environment uh, around the high-performance environmental structure that increases the achievement level of those already high performers in that organization because of the circumstances in that environment. What were some of those levers? Well, there are several, but one of the ones that I would call out most specifically that you know struck me during the research and that I also see translating into the business field is this concept of meaning, which essentially is saying, why are you here? And so if you have a deep sense of meaning, and it's a combination of intrinsic motivation as well as extrinsic motivation, but definitely tilts more towards the intrinsic motivation, that will allow for individuals and teams that are operating in a highly stressful environment to endure a meaningful amount of performance pressure and to actually achieve more than they think they can because they are intrinsically motivated to do so, which is kind of along the concept of what we think we're going to talk about a little bit later is in grit. And then extrinsically, what were some of the circumstances or environments that you could create to, I guess, nurture high performance? Or encourage it? Yeah. So I think that, you know, as you look at the high performance environmental structure, there are essentially two levers on extrinsic motivation. And one of them was really providing clarity on what is defined as achievement of the goal, as well as clarity on what failure is against the goal. And then the associated consequences with failure and the associated rewards associated with achievement. And then you had mentioned that Cal Rugby was the most high performance place you've ever had the privilege of being in. I'm really curious. Why do you say that? What about that place made it so high performance? Well, it's certainly the long track record of achievement of that program and the group of people that have been able to participate in it. But it really, in my opinion, came from the structure that the coaching staff in particular, Jack Clark and Tom Billups, who was the assistant coach and still is, put in terms of standards and values around the team. And what they believe, and I certainly believe and try to transpose this and bring it into any of the organizations that I work in, is that 
everyone has the opportunity to be a leader. So regardless of rank and file, brass on shoulders, titles, whatever it happens to be within an organization, it's opening the opportunity for anyone in the organization, whether you're a freshman or you're a rookie analyst on the team, to actually step up and be a leader. And the leadership definition that they have embraced, that I certainly still embrace, is the ability to make those around you better and more productive. So it's not just the captain that has that responsibility. It's everyone's responsibility to make each other better. And it really comes down to a couple of other core values that you know it's amazing how it was in a sporting environment at the time and it produced incredible output and results. But it's something that I still hold you know, very near and dear to my heart in my organizations today. And some of those values are team before self. Am I doing the right thing for the team? And am I being selfless in the decisions that I make? It's entitled to nothing, grateful for everything. And one of the things that you know is challenging, especially in the, the modern workforce environment is as you see people coming from different backgrounds and everyone's anxious to get to that next promotion, that next dollar, there in many cases is a great sense of entitlement and lots of misses as it relates to gratitude. So I really have embraced that as one of the shining values that I learned in that program that I bring into my organization to where we actually recognize on a quarterly basis, as well as in our annual sales kickoff conference, the rewards and recognition for certainly achievement against goals. But the person that embodies entitled to nothing, grateful for everything, is our highest award. That's so cool. I started a book the other night from Brene Brown, Dare to Lead. And she talks about leadership as being essentially brave enough to identify and foster talent. And I'm curious from your perspective, how do you identify that talent? Like maybe even within your own organization, what are things that you think about, I don't know, maybe leading indicators that you look for in high potential talent that you think could really be an amazing leader one day? So I spend time in one of the things that I'm really proud of in my career is not necessarily you know, getting companies to certain revenue thresholds, getting them through successful exits, but is how can I be part of the journey of partnering with incredible human beings that have a ton of potential and helping them to reach their potential in whatever path they're choosing. So there are people that I've hired in the past as sales reps that have become managers, that have become VPs, and it goes across different aspects of the organization. And I treat that as the highest form of currency that I get personal satisfaction on is seeing other people that have put an incredible amount of work in and definitely seeing incredible results, but to see them progress their careers, whether they're within my company or elsewhere, I get a ton of satisfaction out of that. As it relates to talent profile, this is something that I kind of geek out on. And we partner with a company that helps us assess the specific attributes and characteristics of our highest performing team members. And we have essentially created a diagnostic test in partnership with this company to the interview process where we do a behavioral test to determine whether or not, just regardless of what's happened on paper, do you embody some of these same characteristics, values, and from a personality perspective, do we think that you'd be a great fit to operating in our environment? But one of the things that I always do in any interview that I ask, regardless of it's a salesperson, a marketing person, or what have you, is I always finish up with a question is, what is the hardest thing that you've ever earned? And regardless of what happens on the resume or the LinkedIn profile, 
it's amazing to see the types of responses that come back from candidates where they actually go deep and in some cases very personal on things that they're really proud of that they've earned and that were really hard. And so what I'm essentially testing there is to determine whether or not they've had a really easy life and things have kind of been a bit of a layup. And if that is potentially going to translate into some sense of potential entitlement, or have they endured some really challenging situations and whether they failed or they achieved the objective, there were some great learnings there. But it also is a ability for me to determine whether or not they have the grit or the ability to endure really hard work that is in many cases unrelenting. I love that. Are there any characteristics that you'd be willing to share that have come out of the study that you've done in the top performers at Service Titan? And again, I know this is a little bit of your secret sauce. So as much as you're comfortable or willing to share, it'd be great. Absolutely. So certainly one of the characteristics is this ability to be incredibly dynamic. You know, in Cal Rugby, they talk about moving on to the next most important thing. And in the fast-paced environment of SaaS, particularly as it relates to sales and hitting revenue objectives, the landscape is ever-changing, whether it's a customer objection or there's a deal on the finish line, or we can't get enough pipeline to service our account executives. We have to make you know, split decisions and prioritize those decisions. So I think being dynamic is incredibly important. The other is this insatiability about performance and achievement that I really find is one of the common traits that are conducive to success. You know, at Service Titan, for example, we operate on a monthly cadence. It's not like you work on the quarter, you work on the year. It's the month is the end of the year. And in that situation, every single day matters. So the decisions that you make, the priorities that you make, the fact that you're not going to get that two to three days off that a lot of software companies will see in salespeople just taking a breath is not available to us. And so making sure that they can quickly recognize what they did well, more importantly, recognize what they didn't do well and learn from those with corrective actions and apply them to the next most important objective is really important. So that insatiability is really important. And then the last and probably the most important to me is that the team members are selfless in the way in which they operate. They're not making decisions purely based on their own compensation plan but they're doing it for not just the benefit of the company and not just for the benefit of the other teammates that are on the team, but they're really thinking about the customer first. And what we found is that if we take care of the customers and we put their success at the foremost priority as our North Star, everything else will fall into place. On the second point, the insatiability, would it be an oversimplification to characterize that as competitiveness? Yeah, I think that competitiveness is one way to think about that. But what I don't value is competing with your teammate and doing something that would be unnatural for the betterment of the company just because you want to beat Susie or Joe in a competition as it relates to hitting quota. I think it's more about competing with yourself and seeing if you can achieve your best performance and that that's well aligned with the team's performance. So for example, when Rickus Pretorius, who is our fabulous VP of Worldwide Sales, who I've worked with a couple times and you might be surprised or you might not be surprised he's a former teammate of mine from the Cal Rugby program we really care about what we call balanced rep performance which is essentially how can we get as many of our quota carrying individuals and teams 
at or above their number on a monthly, quarterly, annual basis. And that really incentivizes all team members to not only hit their individual objectives, but to help their teammates so that we can you know, stand at the lectern on sales kickoff and say, we are one of very few companies that had 90% of our quota carriers hitting their targets. And that's something that we really hold near and dear to our hearts. And is that something 90%, is that kind of a benchmark that you have in your head that you recruit with as something that you guys want to look for in holistic performance of the team? We actually set our standards a lot higher than that. And so when I'm talking about the 90%, I'm just talking about if you've got 100 reps and you want to make sure that a meaningful amount of them are achieving their goals over whatever unit of measurement, a month, quarter, year, is that we want the whole population to be participating, right? This is what we call participation rate. As it relates to individual and team goals, we have a value at the company, which is to achieve the extraordinary and the bar for extraordinary is exceptionally high. For example, within our sales organization, extraordinary is defined as over 150% against target. Out of curiosity, what percentage of people are achieving extraordinary, are achieving over 150%? Is it 10%, 40%? I don't have the latest. It's high. But I will tell you that we did do a recognition event based on the performance of last year. And we essentially had to double the headcount allocation and essentially buy out the entire hotel because we had so many teammates across the organization achieving extraordinary performance. This reminds me of an episode that we did with Sam Blonde, the CRO of Brex, previously the CRO of Zenefits. So he was employee, you know, call it 10, basically pre-revenue at both those places. He was the, then the CRO of both of them. And he talks about creating a winning culture. And he talks about this exact thing, which is, look, you could have an organization where the standard is that the outlier is the folks that hit quota, but then you have a losing culture. And so if you create a culture of you have to win, there's no other way to do it, but you have to win, then overachievement on quota just becomes the baseline, exceptional achievement over quota becomes over 150%. And then there's a few outliers that happen to be not achieving that quota versus the inverse, which actually tends to be popular belief among comp plans and quotas that sales leaders set. Yeah. So we definitely fly very close to the sun. And what I mean by that is in comparison to other companies that I've either consulted with in the EIR program at Bestimer, or even in my own experiences, you typically see this philosophy on creating plans for the year that have over a sign, which is essentially defined as, you know, if the quota that the company is taking on for its annual objective is a hundred million, you apply an over assignment to the tune of 120 or 130 million of quota on the street. We actually, when I mean fly close to the sun, you're rails on rails. We're rails on rails. And in some cases, we're even under assigned. But we have a track record of consistent and predictable performance to where we don't need that over-assignment. And we don't have layup quotas either. Our inside salespeople, they carry quotas larger than the majority of enterprise B2B SaaS companies that I know of. And our enterprise team carried double that. And we're selling software and servicing to a market that is very different than the industries that I've worked in in the past, where I used to call on HP and Google and Facebook and the like. And we're calling on the hardworking men and women of the trades that are plumbers and heating and air conditioning contractors. So to be able to achieve that is certainly a testament to our great culture and our great sales organization, but more so 
to the outcomes that we are able to produce for our customers because they become our evangelists and the incredible product that our team has built. So when you say we are underassigned, that means you are underassigned, right? Because ultimately the revenue, the goal rolls up to you. And so the sum of everyone's goal is your goal. And so when you say we, you mean you. And I guess, why the hell would you be underassigned? I mean, the popular belief towards why you would not be rails on rails, metal on metal, is because there's attrition, things happen, markets change, whatever it is, you want some overcapacity because the worst thing is, what's the worst thing that happens? I guess, you know, you pay a little extra and you make sure that you hit the company number. What advantage or benefit do you have as you say it, and I like this expression, but flying so close to the sun. So financially, there's probably not too much of an advantage that we can dig into, but I think that it's really pushing our teams to achieve what we think is just barely possible. And more often than not, we're able to come in with that incredible result. We also care about doing it in a responsible way and being efficient in the resources, whether it's the spend that we have in marketing, or it's the actual quota assigned to the street, we want to do it as efficiently as possible. And we consistently inspect and assess what parts of the business are yielding the highest return and then to reprioritize accordingly on a monthly basis. That's incredible. You know, one of the things even that you mentioned was what Sam talked about in this winning culture. And it really reminded me when I interviewed at Service Titan and I talked to Ara, who is the CEO and the, one of the co-founders, and he asked me this question as we were having dinner at uh, this incredible Armenian restaurant in Glendale called Rafi's Kebab. My family's obsessed with Rafi's. Great food. And he asked me this question. And he's a very competitive guy. I played basketball and soccer with him. No one's more competitive than him. But he actually asked me, he's like, what matters more to you? Do you like to win or do you hate to lose? And I thought about it for a second and I said, gosh, I really love winning. And you know, if you look at the track record, I have had some good wins under my belt. I've definitely had some losses. But when I look back, it's those losses that just churn my stomach. And so when we think about the culture within the organization is we set really high standards. And I think that what motivates the team, and I can't speak for all of them, but I can certainly speak for me, is not failing and to not lose against the objective. And that you know, if you don't lose, you win all the time. If you focus on winning and you just get gratification out of those wins, you can sometimes easily forget those losses. Yeah, failure or fear of failure is a hell of a motivator. I could talk about this for more than one episode, but why don't we actually talk about Service Titan for a second? Can you tell us a story of what Service Titan is, what is the business, and how did it come to be? Service Titan, it's, it's an incredible story, and it is one of the reasons that I was so attracted to it. And I'm happy to share with you kind of my journey to Service Titan because it was non-traditional, and I didn't want to like it based on the way it was originally <laughs> advertised to me. But when I first met with Ara and Vahe, the company was probably 200, 250 people, and that was in 2017. And... I learned their story and that these guys were the sons of contractors, literally plumbers that had immigrated to this country, Armenian background. Their fathers and families were in pursuit of the American dream. And their dads literally would go out the door in steel-toed boots and a blue collar every single morning before the sun came up to go help other people. 
and then saw their dads come back well after the sun went down. And when they focused their efforts on education, they were able to earn admission to some of the top universities. And as much as I hate to say it, being a Cal guy, Ara went to Stanford and Bahe went to USC. And they were incredible students. They studied engineering and computer science. And what they chose to do is instead of all the opportunities that were available to them from going to any number of companies in Silicon Valley, Facebook, Google, going down to Sand Hill Road and becoming a venture capitalist or an investment banker, they decided to pursue that higher calling and in recognition of not only how hard their fathers work, but also how hard the men and women of the trades work every single day to make the rest of us feel comfortable in our homes and businesses. They did the Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak thing, but instead of going into their parents' garage in Palo Alto, they went to their dad's plumbing shop in Glendale, California and created and wrote this incredible software that originally started for just their fathers to run a more efficient business, but has you know, translated into all the accolades that you had mentioned before. And so I'm sure they're all very proud of what they've accomplished, but our goals are audacious and we do want to become the total operating system of the trades. And uh, we've got a big mission in front of us. But one of the things that I think they completely nailed is the intrinsic motivation of why we're here. The meaning that we're here is to help contractors be successful. And they depend on us to help their businesses in the future, just like their dads depended on them to help their business and change their lives. What an incredible story. And you had mentioned that they had all these options that they could have done given that they were well-educated, came from these incredible schools. They could have gone into iBanking. They could have gone into venture. You had those options as well. In fact, you did those things and you did the high-tech startup that was acquired. What was the decision-making process like for you going to Service Titan? And, and you said something funny, it's like you didn't want to like it. All right, can you share more about that? Again, you know, Byron Dieter, who is the investor from Bessemer and sits on the board of Service Titan, he kind of goes back to my relationship with him and ultimately him sparking this. I was at Lithium at the time, and it was almost four years ago now because I remember the exact date was right around that famous debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in Las Vegas, if you remember that, mm -hmm. in the 2016 election. But, anyways, my CEO, Rob Tarkoff at Lithium, called me on a Friday and he said, Hey, we need to have you go work on this deal with the chief technology officer of Waze, you know, the traffic application company that's owned by Google. And I said, No problem. He goes, It's also in Israel. So Saturday, jump onto the plane, fly 15 to 20 hours. I can't remember how long it was to Tel Aviv. And I touch down and I go meet with the CTO of Waze on the Monday. And I check into my hotel and there's this guy that's wearing a Cal Rugby polo shirt and it's Byron Dieter. And, you know, how could you draw that up or make that up that two guys from the Bay Area that both played rugby at Cal or in the software business are there? And so Byron's there either speaking with his team or doing a conference. And I say, hey, Byron, let's go grab a beer. And so we went out and there's the two of us in Tel Aviv, however many thousand miles away from California. And I asked him at the time, I said, what's the most interesting company that you've invested in recently? And he's obviously had so many great wins at Bessemer. And he goes, the one that I'm really excited about right now is this little company out of Glendale, California called Service Titan. I said, oh, really? What do they do? He goes, well, they've created this incredible software for the massively underserved 
and in many cases ignored market in residential and commercial contracting tradespeople. So tradespeople, he goes, yeah, plumbers, heating and air conditioning guys, electricians. And he said, they're actually looking for a VP of sales. I think you should go meet with Aaron Bahe, the founders, and talk about this thing because I'm really excited about it. And I said, respectfully, Brian, I know how improving your track record is. But number one, I sell software to Google and HP. I don't know anything about selling to this segment of the market. And I don't know where Glendale is other than being somewhere near the Rose Bowl, <laughs> which I hope Cal gets to at some point because it's been since 1959. He encouraged me to go and check it out. And so I reluctantly, but you know, didn't want to turn down the offer to go meet. And I wasn't looking for a job at all at the time. Met with Aaron Bahe. They shared with me their story and they exposed me to other members of the team. And I put my old investment banking hat on and they were willing to afford me a glance at their financial materials and then I sat through a demo of the software and I you know, literally jaw dropped at the time and said, this is a diamond in the rough. This is an incredible business. I'm really interested in learning more. But one of the things that I asked them to allow me to do is to speak with a customer, knowing that I was going to be in sales. I wanted to see what the customer's point of view was. And so I had the opportunity to go see this contractor, a heating and air conditioning contractor, and you know, going from the offices of Google and Palo Alto, where everyone's riding around on a bike and he's got a vending machine with any type of Bose headphone that they want and all the free lunches to a industrial warehouse with tradespeople was a bit of a shocking and different experience. But the first thing I noticed was how incredible these people were. The second was how powerful the product was and how much it positively impacted their business and the stories that they shared with me about how it changed their lives. And so what's amazing about Service Titan is when you walk into a contracting, they call them shops, contracting business or shop, literally, if they're using Service Titan, everybody in the business uses Service Titan. You've got Susie, the call center manager, to Johnny, who's the dispatcher, to Jerry, who's the CEO, to Eric, who's the technician. They're all living their entire day in service type and they run their entire business on it. So I said, wow, this is an incredible sticky and mission critical product. But again, when they told me that they not only increased their profits by X percentage year over year, and they grew their revenue by 25% in the first nine months of being live on service Titan, and they provided a better customer experience to their customers. And they said that they got to spend more time with their husband or wife or family members or kids and go on vacation for the first time in five years and not being worried about their business because they could focus on it versus being in it. I called my wife, Rebecca, who's the chief marketing officer of a software company in the Bay Area. And I said, I love you. We have to do this. And for the foreseeable future, I'm going down to LA to pursue this mission. So fast forward two and a half years, I couldn't be happier with the decision. And as I did some research on the business, even though you may be serving a non-tech market, I looked up Service Titan use case. And on Google, you're using all of the traditional sales tools that you might, you know, they're all bragging about having you as a customer. You have a land and expand model that I think is really interesting that reminds me a lot of a traditional software business. You also have an interesting model around verticalizing and expanding through different verticals. And in some cases, that expansion actually happens through acquisition. 
So, you know, one of my guests was uh, the CRO of Atlassian. They have a beachhead vertical that they go into and then they expand through each vertical horizontally via acquisition. And so I look at some of the acquisitions that you guys just did. Like you recently bought Pointman, which was a service for contractors. I'll pause there, but from your experience doing traditional SaaS B2B sales, how much parallel is there in the way that you actually build your go-to-market? There are certainly some parallels in best practices that I've learned from other parts of my career, but this place is very unique. And the velocity and the clip by which we operate, not just in the business per se, but the customer acquisition engine and the go-to-market engine, I mean, it is very fast. And so again, we measure the business monthly. We essentially create pipeline every single day, and we measure the close rate against that pipeline on a monthly basis. So if you develop a certain amount of pipeline in the month of September, it is expected based on the way in which we have conducted our operating rhythm and go to market strategy and execution that a significant portion of that business that was generated in month is also going to close in month. So it's a little bit non-traditional in that you're not answering a ton of RFPs and you're not working on six, nine month sales cycles. You're literally selling the equivalent value of what would otherwise be deemed as enterprise sales in seven to 10 days. That's crazy. What are the main objections that you would get in an industry like this? Is it just, I would imagine it's people have been running their family business the same way for so long that they just don't want change. Even if it's so obvious that this is a piece of software that's carved such a unique niche, that's so additive to the value that they could provide to their customers in their business. Is it just like, hey, I don't wanna change. I don't wanna do things any different. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think that it really varies based on different segments of the market. And so one of the things that I had the, the benefit of being a part of at Lithium is that Jeffrey Moore, who wrote Crossing the Chasm, right, was on our board. And so we certainly studied that. And I think there's some parallels, right? As we look at the residential and commercial contracting space in the US and Canada specifically, there are definitely those that are like me in 2007 that waited outside the Union Square Apple store to buy the first generation of the iPhone because like, I can have my music and I can have you know, my email and all these different cool apps on one device. And there was that cohort of the market that we serve that signed up quick and you just said, this is the future. I want to be a part of it. And then you've got those laggards, those folks that are a little bit harder. And you know, I might think about those as like my uncle, right? Who doesn't buy anything until it gets five out of five stars and consumer reports that he still subscribes to on paper. And those are the, the ones that we are really trying to focus a different orientation around the market. And you're right and that you've got multi-generational businesses and you have to approach these things with a deep sense of empathy. And you really have to focus on what is the outcome that the contractor wants for their business. And where you specifically try to focus on is, you know, what are the levers from a financial perspective? Certainly increasing profitability and driving greater efficiencies, essentially digitizing their business and reducing either pen and paper in its most you know, modest form or ridding them of multiple disparate, very loosely jointed together systems. You know, maybe it's 
Excel or Google Calendar and QuickBooks, for example, that they're trying to manage their business that requires a lot of overhead and inefficient manual workflows. And then you've got the segment that is really experimented in the past with the software vendors in the space that have, in many cases, more antiquated technology and aren't covering the breadth of what our platform is capable of doing. And that's where you really focus the attention on making sure that they're looking at the specific value levers around increased profitability with better efficiencies, rapidly accelerating their revenue growth in the business, giving them a complete view on how they're performing, driving a better customer experience for homeowners, commercial property managers, and the like. And then lastly, doing it in a way that gives them a lot more time in their pocket. And is the business model today focused on selling to residential companies? So we, we service both residential as well as commercial contractors. So your house in San Francisco, if you called uh, based on your heater not working, it'd be very likely that uh, you're going to talk to a service titan customer that is going to be able to help you as one of their customers using the service titan platform from the time the call comes in to the dispatching to give you a notification on your phone that the technician's in route to that technician coming prepared with all of your equipment history and providing you an incredible contactless experience, which is something that we introduced in COVID to help you identify the best way to solve your heating issue in your home and allowing you to look at multiple options, where do you want to fix or replace that unit, taking payment in the field. And then we do similarly on the commercial side of the business, those that are servicing the Service Titan headquarters building in, in Glendale, for example. What do you think the future holds in store for this business? How does it grow? What are some key levers that you can pull to accelerate this motion? Maybe it's vertical, maybe it's horizontally. What do you think are going to be the key inhibitors from your perspective on the go-to-market side in order to achieve the next phase of this company? So we have our sights on being a much larger business. And the strategy that we've put together is certainly focused in specific areas. You know, One of them is certainly on customer acquisition within the core verticals that we serve today and the core markets that we serve today. And the good news is that we're seeing a tremendous amount of growth, but we still have a lot of runway in front of us. And so we think that we can continue to optimize that for efficient customer acquisition to fuel our growth rates. The other is looking at new markets. And we have a dedicated team that is testing product market fit and research, and then actually going in and selling the product and giving feedback to our product and engineering organization on tweaks and changes that we need to make to better serve that market once we understand the landscape. And so we've been able to demonstrate from a company that just started out servicing plumbers to doing it in HVAC, in electrical, into chimney, into water treatment. And we are continuing to expand those verticals on both the residential, commercial, and even new construction segment. And there are additional segments and verticals that we want to go after beyond the US and Canada. There's a, there are a lot of homes and there are a lot of commercial properties throughout this world that are in need of software to help those businesses run more efficiently. And then that's really for our core platform. And then we also have our growth strategy. So my partners in growth and business development you know, are able to help us achieve scale in orders of magnitude that can absolutely grow our business as we think about additional products that we can create to attach to our customer base to help them run their businesses even better. 
And if you look at the stack of what contractors typically spend money on outside of payroll, they're looking at equipment, they're looking at their relationships with their marketing vendors, they're looking at their payroll vendors, they're looking at insurance, they're looking at email, they're looking at their CRM system. And we think that there's an incredible opportunity for us to continue serving their business with a singular vendor and you know, providing the appropriate integrations into partners that are beneficial in the space as well. And back to the second part of my first question, you have your sights set on this big giant company. That's incredible. If I was asking Ross today, and we'll have to do a postmortem in a couple of years to see how things are going, but if I was asking you today, key hurdles that you think are going to be important for you to solve or just unique challenges to get to that point in the business. Is there anything that stands out to you today that you really think about, focus on, lose sleep over? Yeah, I think that certainly as we think about the the TAM and the customer acquisition model, that is something that sometimes I think about, but I actually think we are going to be well positioned there. But going back to one of the prior comments I had in the interview was, if we ever lose sight of understanding why we're here, which is to make contractors successful, that will be the single inhibitor. The single thing that leaves me sleepless at night is if we ever get to a place where we're not taking care of our customers. And you know, we find that everything comes from making sure that our customers are not only happy with us, but we're actually providing them the business outcomes that they desire and that they deserve. And so if we continue to do that and put customer success at the North Star, everything else follows. So that is really the one area that if we ever lost sight of that, which I don't think we will, that would preclude us from reaching our true potential. That's a great place for us to leave it, man. I wrap up every one of these with the same two questions. The first is a two-part question. What does the word grit mean to you and how do you or your teams apply it? Yeah, so... I have read Angela's book on grit. I was actually talking to my dad about this recently because he's got a lot of uh, good friends, as do I, that have gone to West Point. And I know that that was the subject matter of much of her research. But as it relates to grit, you know, I, I do believe in one of the definitions, and I'm probably a little bit loose in the exact phrasing, but it's essentially a calculation of how much are you willing to endure? And how much fight do you have in you? But I also think about that as the resiliency and the ability to be dynamic that we talked about before was regardless of the outcome, whether you won the game 100 to nothing or lost zero to 100, it is really interrogating and assessing the performance that you had in that interval and applying the learnings and getting right back in the saddle the next morning and doing it again. If someone wants to get a hold of you, they want to be a part of this next generation of growth with this company, hear what you're up to. Are you hiring? And if so, what are you hiring for and how would they get a hold of you? Yeah, the company continues to grow and we're doing very well and we have really performed well. While I know that it's been challenging for a lot of software businesses during the global pandemic, but we are continuing to scale and grow our teams to be able to serve our customers and to become the total operating system of the trade. So the best place to look for career opportunities is careers at servicetitan.com and just on our website. And I'm very open to taking 
LinkedIn, in mails, et cetera. So would love to speak to anybody that is interested in being part of this mission because it is a rocket ship. Ross, thank you for your time. Thanks, Jubin. Have a great day. Thank you folks for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir or shoot us an email gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.